evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, great pleasure to see you all here. My name's Alastair Newton. Uh, I'm an alumnus of the London School of Economics. Uh, my job this evening is simply to moderate uh, the two experts at my left hand here and the discussion which we're going to have. Tom Burke and uh, Abby Purseau. I'm not going to tell you all about them because you've seen the bio notes and I want to crack on with the substance. They're each going to speak for about 20 minutes. Tom's going to talk about uh, the challenge of climate change and Abby is then going to tell us all how we can invest and make money out of it, hopefully. Um, now, the background to this is uh, it's a bit of a personal hobby horse of mine. Uh, back in October 2008, just after Lehman Brothers, for whom I used to work, uh, had gone bust. I gave the first of what turned out to be uh, a seemingly never-ending series of presentations on the implications of the global financial crisis. And one of the things I uh, predicted at that time, which sadly has turned out to be, in my view, all too true, is that uh, climate change, addressing climate change, would become a victim of the financial crisis. And um, I want to test that thesis this evening with uh, our two expert speakers, and I'm just looking for a piece of paper which I brought with me with some quotes which I picked up recently. Sorry about this, I should have got them out earlier. Um, from an article, um, no, not there. Um, those of you may have seen an article by Simon Kuiper, which appeared in the FT magazine a couple of weekends ago. And it's headed, Climate Change, Who Cares Anymore? And uh, we'd actually arranged this session before I read this article, but it kind of sums it up for me. Um, Simon starts off by saying, like almost everyone else, I've given up trying to prevent climate change. We in the West have recently made an unspoken bet. We're going to wing it, run the risk of climatic catastrophe, and hope that it is mostly faraway people in poor countries who uh, will suffer. He goes on to say, if you were running a country like Britain in 2007, you probably thought that climate change was the single overriding issue. Terrorism, immigration and even the economy were details by comparison. But in 2008, the economic crisis hit. To quote the political scientist Roger Pielka, Iron Elka's Iron Law, when policies focused on economic growth confront policies focused on emissions, uh, on emission reductions, it is economic growth which will win out every time. So on that rather depressingly salutary note, I'm going to invite Tom uh, to kick off uh, with his thoughts on where we're going on climate change. <laughs> thank you very much, Alistair, and uh, thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you today. Um, when Alistair first proposed the idea of this evening, uh, we thought, at least at that time, that we might be coming to the end of uh, an economic crisis. As it turned out, we were simply reaching another edge in the economic cliff that we have been falling off for the last three years. And this has led to the debate Alistair referred to that's now swirling through the media, especially the more right-wing elements of the media, and is increasingly swirling around a Whitehall about whether we can afford all this green stuff. What I find particularly ironic about this debate is that it's being led and driven by exactly the same people whose ferocious commitment to the short term got us into this mess in the first place. 
the very same economists who fail to understand that what the much vaunted uh, innovation of the uh, financial community in the city of London was doing was actually multiplying and concealing risk, not managing it. Uh, and it's them that are now advising us to delay in dealing with what is indeed the most significant risk to the future of humanity. The lesson that I uh, draw from that uh, uh, sad experience is that we would do well to pay a bit more attention to what is happening in the real world, uh, which is constantly telling us about the climate, uh, uh, and we should pay a bit more attention to those who can tell us about that real world and listen a lot less to those who've only got an elusive grasp of the difference between what's going on in their models uh, and uh, what's actually going on in the world and are therefore constantly surprised when the world stubbornly refuses to conform to what their models told them it was uh, supposed to be doing. What I want to argue this evening is that we don't have an economic problem with uh, tackling climate change, but we do have a significant growing and largely unanalyzed political problem. That's not to say that I think the economics of climate change are easy, only that they are much less important and a lot uh, less difficult than the politics. I suppose I should add by way of a declaration of interest that I'm not someone who believes that the world is only a poorly described market and that all uh, political problems are not simply economic problems in disguise. Uh, and can therefore be solved if only we can uh, come up with the right model which will give us the answers. Uh, one of the more unusual and interesting features of climate change as a problem is that we do have a really clear analysis of the problem and what it means and what we have to do. We know exactly what we need to do to tackle this problem. We need to construct a carbon-neutral global energy system by around about the middle of the century. We know how to do it. All of the technologies that we need in order to achieve that goal are already uh, existence. We have the technologies, we have the engineering knowledge uh, to get there in time. We know that we can afford to do that. The uh, International Energy Agency had a rather interesting um, uh, statement uh, sometime early last year and they pointed out that the net cost of um, moving to a carbon neutral energy system would only be uh, a couple of trillion dollars more than what we've got to spend anyway on energy over the next 25 years and a couple of trillion dollars used to sound like a lot of money, and then the bankers told us actually it's not very much money at all. A couple of trillion dollars over 25 years is a few tens of billions a year. Uh, and that's the difference it would take in terms of the spend to get from a world uh, with enough energy services to meet its needs that is high carbon and to get there uh, in one that is low carbon. So there isn't a problem about whether we can afford it. What we don't know how to do is how to put that technologies or those technologies and that capital together. Uh, that's the problem and that will require an enormous amount of political will and I think political will as we've all seen is what the economic crisis uh, has shown us to be pretty sadly lacking uh, in all kinds of ways. Now there are some other ways and significant ways in which climate change is very different from other problems that we've had to tackle. And let me just pick out three of those ways. The first is, it is a problem 
that is more truly global than any other problem. The livelihood of literally every single person in every single nation will be affected by a changing climate. Now, far too many people lead lives that are constrained by poverty, by violence, by ignorance, by ill health. But those people share the planet with people who leave peaceful, educated, affluent and healthy lives. Everyone, everyone, for better or almost certainly for worse, will live with the consequences of a changing climate. This creates an entanglement of interests that we really have no previous precedent for dealing with. There may well be hard part consequences to our failure to deal with uh, a changing climate, but there are no hard power solutions to this problem. We can't solve this problem by one nation imposing its will uh, on another. Therefore, solving the problem is going to require an intensity and persistence of cooperation between nations of a kind we haven't yet seen. Now, since cooperation between governments is never one-dimensional, that means climate policy success is ultimately predicated on the continuance of a global system where cooperation takes precedence over competition. One of the significant consequences of failing to deal with the economic crisis is that we will completely undermine our ability to deal with the climate crisis simply by uh, reducing the political and public support for uh, our rules-based global open trading system that has been the foundation uh, of prosperity for the last 60 years. A second way in which um, policy, in which climate change, can I have a glass of water? Sorry, thank you. Second uh, uh, way is that policy failure isn't an option. The development of public policy is typically empirical. Human beings learn by doing things. Policy measures are adopted, monitored for effectiveness, reviewed to take account of changing circumstances, and revised as necessary. An economic, social, or political goal that we don't achieve today can be pursued uh, tomorrow. But that's not true for climate change. The long lifetime of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere a lot of centuries, means that we are committed irrevocably uh, in policy terms, indefinitely, to whatever climate is generated by the carbon burden in the atmosphere at the point of stabilization. If we fail to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations at a level compatible with staying below two degrees, we can't go back and later try to achieve that goal. That goal is gone for good extremely difficult to get economists to understand that, that you can't go back and do it over. Third, there is a specific time frame within which action must be taken. The build-up of carbon in the atmosphere is cumulative and, as I've said, effectively irreversible. Most governments have now accepted that a two-degree rise in global average temperatures marks a boundary between what you might think of as manageable and what might be almost certainly unmanageable climate change. To remain within that boundary condition, global carbon emissions must peak somewhere in the period between 2015 and 2020 and decline uh, rapidly thereafter. That's the window. If we don't do that, then we haven't solved the problem and we can't go back and say, oh dear, that effort didn't work, let's try again to solve the problem. The 
first priority of any government uh, is clearly to maintain its territorial integrity. And after that, the next urgent thing for a government to do is to maintain internal stability. After that, food, energy, uh, water, and now climate security are the most important imperatives for any government. They make up, if you like, the pillars of prosperity on which the rest of the economy uh, rests. Now, the complexity and dynamic nature of the relationship between these pillars uh, presents real difficulties to public policy and to politics, which I don't think we've really yet grasped. The institutional structures governments currently have in place to tackle these issues treat each one separately. Typically, energy, water, food, and climate are each dealt with by seven government departments or agencies, each as a separate constellation of supporting professionals and cluster of related businesses. This significantly increases the risk of policy cannibalism as solutions to one problem add to the difficulties of another. The British government's been rather brilliant at this. It has argued consistently for the last 20 years that it wants to drive energy prices down in order to deal with food, uh, poverty, uh, food uh, poverty, fuel poverty sorry, uh, and competitiveness, and it wants to drive the price of carbon up in order to solve the climate problem. And as we've seen in the last few days, it's finally come to realise there is actually a complete inconsistency between uh, those two policy uh, drivers, and that's what I tend to think of as a cannibalistic policy. One bit of it eats another bit of it. Uh, now, you can, uh, if you're threatened with water security, you can address that by energy-intensive desalinization. This is happening increasingly uh, around the world, and you can do water transfer projects of the kind uh, that the Chinese are now uh, uh, starting to do. Uh, but at the risk of, for instance, undermining your energy security by increasing the amount of energy that you have to import, fossil energy in particular. If that energy is provided by fossil fuels, then you will undermine the climate security, which will threaten the water security that you were doing this in the first place to try and deal with. If lower water security threatens your food security by altering climate precipitation, by precipitation patterns, you can compensate for that by the use of more energy-intensive agrochemicals, and you can do water transfer projects. But if the additional energy is provided from fossil fuels, this increases the risk both of further altering the precipitation patterns, but as is now becoming increasingly clear, rising temperatures actually lower uh, uh, food security because they lower the productivity once you go, go above two degrees or so everywhere, uh, not only in uh, tropical latitudes. So little is gained, frankly, if you policy effort to strengthen one of the pillars of prosperity simply undermines another one uh, of uh, those pillars. I don't think it's widely understood yet by politicians, policymakers, or the public that climate change is going to lead to a complete transformation of the human prospect. Whatever happens, this is true whether climate policy succeeds or whether climate policy fails. If climate policy succeeds, the transformation will take place over the next 30 years. If it fails, the transformation that is already underway will accelerate gradually and then become very dramatic in the 30 years after that. The choice, and the political choice, really is whether events or people drive the transformation. We can either let the events shape our future or we can decide to shape our future for ourselves. If people make the choice, then over the next 30 years, the way in which we use energy will be transformed. 
That's going to bring an enormous range of co-benefits, both in terms of economic efficiency and human well-being, and it will mean that we have a better chance of maintaining food and water security. And right now, it will generate an awful lot of the missing demand that will help a bit with the economic uh, crisis. However, the pattern of winners and losers will be very greatly disrupted. If events drive the transformation, then the global average temperature will rise inexorably and for all practical purposes, irreversibly. And let me just set a number. I've tried very hard to talk about climate change without many numbers, but let's let me set the Hadley Center, one of the, more, uh, the most uh, authoritative of the various forecasters. Their projections are that if we carry on on our current business as usual course, that on their worst case, we will be in a world that is four degrees warmer than now, in that world, not committed to that world at some point in the indefinite future, but living in that world uh, by around about 2060. On their worst case projection, if we continue uh, as we are now, business as usual case, then we will find ourselves in that world by 2090. That's something to bear about four degrees average global temperatures, by the way, is about 12 degrees in the Arctic. I work part of my time for Rio Tinto. I can promise you that in a four degree warmer world, Rio Tinto does not have a mining business. The level of stability in the world will be such that the kind of investments that a company like Rio Tinto makes would be simply impossible to make. So that close, that urgent. We get into that world, food and water security will be undermined, and ever larger number of people will be displaced, exposed to conflict and disease, and subject to deeper climate-induced poverty. In those circumstances, preserving political support for the international institutions that have sustained our prosperity and security uh, over the last 50 years will become progressively more difficult. Now, the international negotiations, lots of talk about what happened in Copenhagen. They didn't fail because um, uh, the process was wrong, though there are faults in the process. They failed simply because the political will wasn't there uh, to address the problems. And political will is developed in the capitals, not in the negotiating rooms. And far too much of the debate about climate change focuses on the rather marginal discussion of what's going on in the negotiating fora and not enough on the really significant discussions about what's happening in the climate debate in capitals. And what's happening there, and Alistair referred to it, there's an enormous mismatch between the intensity and urgency of the effort that's required to deal with a problem and its perceived remoteness of the threat to everyday life. And this has certainly been made a lot worse by the current economic crisis. Governments everywhere are distracted, constrained by the current uh, uh, fiscal disciplines. They're faced with large, deeply entrenched economic interests, some of which are openly antagonistic to measures needed to prevent dangerous climate change. They're worried about the additional costs uh, of a carbon-constrained economy. But much more importantly than that, much deeper than that as a problem, is that the scale, urgency, and nature of the political uh, policy measures required are a very poor fit with the core projects of both the left and the right in politics. The core project of the right is to build a society with lower taxes, less regulation, smaller government, an ever-expanding realm of uh, personal choice for individuals, and it's one in which they believe that a dominant belief is that markets are always wiser than governments. Climate change is simply a problem that can't be dealt with 
was inside that ideological framework, so it must be wished away, which is why it's not an accident that uh, climate deniers are almost exclusively found uh, on the political right. For the left, the core political project is a commitment to make the economy grow as much as possible in order to pay for improved public services and to alleviate poverty at home and abroad. This is an uncomfortable fit with the need to take risks with growth and to shift expenditure from entitlements to investment in low-carbon infrastructure. This is constraint of focus of the left and right has had an unfortunate consequence of reducing the spectrum of political discourse in Britain to a debate about which celebrity politician you would prefer to micromanage marginal improvements in public services which are already quite good. Not surprisingly, this has not excited the population at large to get engaged in politics, which is uh, one of the reasons why the total membership of uh, political parties in Britain amounts to less than 1% of the population, about half uh, the membership of the RSPB alone. Uh, what I think this means is that we can't rely on our existing political parties to offer voters a clear sight of the choices we must make to preserve prosperity and security. They're going to need, it's going to need a much wider and more engaged public debate on the implications of climate change for everyone and everything. And more importantly, we're going to need a much deeper political analysis of the implications of tackling climate change. What does it mean for the tension between markets and planning? Markets are brilliant at innovating, but they don't have any purposes. Planners are very good at getting purposes articulated, but they aren't very good, isn't very good at innovating. So how do we find a course in there? How do you adjust the balance in public spending between entitlements and investments in low carbon infrastructure? In Britain, we spend about five of our 700 billion pound a year public expenditure, 500 billion goes health, social security, and education. And if you're very, very, very generous in your interpretation, 20 billion goes in dealing with all the environmental uh, uh, measures that we, uh, things that we have to do. So we're currently counting on the future to pay for today. Climate change actually requires that we pay today for a future worth having. My own view is that we aren't going to solve this problem without an insurgency of the under 40s against the over 40s. We need to shift the axis of choice in politics from an antiquated debate between the left and the right to uh, a much more significant debate about choosing the future or the past. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. Good, good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to disappoint uh, those of you who have come for some late afternoon entertainment of a debate uh, of opposing views uh, between Tom and I. Uh, broadly, we agree. We have some differing perspectives. I'm not entirely sure, as someone who was taught economics in these hallowed walls, that economics is the villain of the piece. Uh, and I think economics provides some useful tools, not all the tools we need, but some useful tools in finding solutions to the problems that you have so well articulated. Many people who believe that the dismal science lacks humanity are often those who ne neglect the tremendous amount of work done in economics on social externalities. Maybe the very term social externalities suggests we lack humanity, uh, but the notion that markets left to themselves 
would not lead to outcomes that are always socially optimal for society as a whole is a very old notion in economics. And you had to go back a long way to find the first discussion of what we now call Peguvian taxes, of where we try and change the prices available to the private sector, the incentives available to the private sector, so that they are not operating in opposition to so good social outcomes, but operating in the direction of good social outcomes. And we have a long history of trying to do this in a number of areas. Indeed, the biggest change in the use of solar power in Europe had nothing to do with technology, had everything to do with the changing fiscal incentives for feed-in tariffs for resident users uh, in Germany first, where Germany, I know many of you from this audience here uh, live in Germany, come from Germany, it's not the hottest place on earth. And yet Germany became, for a brief number of years, the country with the biggest, as the biggest user of solar power. So economics, I think, uh, pre presents some potential solutions. But why do we not do what it needs to be done? Tom says that we know what to do. We know how to do it. He probably knows who should be doing it. So why is it not done? And I think that, as, and I speak as a, an economist, but also as someone who does project finance in the area of renewable energies uh, and in energy as a whole, I think that there are five practical problems that we are working against. The first is how do we size these taxes correctly? We have a myriad of incentives in the world today. They are feed-in tariffs, tariffs that people, uh, money they can get for putting in energy that comes from different sources. They're different tariffs for wind versus solar power versus waste to energy. How do we price that correctly to make sure we're incentivizing the right behavior? How do we size all of these efforts to know that we are correctly reducing our use of carbon and encouraging uh, our uh, in innovation to reduce it? I think that uh, we, we know a lot in, our, in science, but we are talking about complex systems that have complex interrelationships, and though finding the right way to calibrate this is not easy. That's not to say that we don't know the direction. We don't know that we need to continue doing more, but I do think it's one of the challenges we face. A second key challenge, of course, is the free rider problem. So people say, look, we'll do our bit. We will become uh, carbon neutral. But have we changed anything if our neighbor is not? And the free rider problem, not just in climate change, but across a whole range of social policy issues are things that hold back people doing what they say they want to do and believe in doing. A third point I would say that I often come across that many of my environmental friends are not familiar with or not sufficiently familiar with is the load, constant load problem with alternative energy. Uh, good. I, I was born in the Caribbean. We're making tremendous efforts in the Caribbean to use solar power more, wind power more. In fact, the Caribbean, as you may know, was at the nexus, at the nexus 
of the first globalization in the world, in part because of solar and wind power that ran the mills for sugar. So we're doing a lot to try and improve the amount of solar and wind power we use, but the problem with non-constant load energy, so take solar power. When the sun goes down, you don't have solar power. We are, we are improving battery capacities tremendously, but today it's not yet at the position where we don't need an alternative to supplement. So if you take a poor country and you say, use more solar power, they need the exact same, or almost exact same, non-solar energy capacity to be there when the sun isn't up. And that actually means that the, the non-solar is even more expensive per unit of energy. And indeed, if you have to have the exact same fossil fuel facility just there in case when the solar isn't there, then the economics of these initiatives uh, are very poor indeed. And indeed, today, the technology and the pricing is changing all the time. But today, most alternatives are still not economic, even at today's price of fossil fuels. I was recently involved in trying to take all of Jamaica's residential waste and turn it into waste to energy. And we could do that at a price that was 50 cents, 50% more expensive than Jamaica was currently spending using fossil fuels. Now, the environmental benefits of taking all the residential waste of a tourism island into waste energy were big. Any of you who visited poor countries will often find uh, large um, waste areas in which uh, which people live on. The social benefits of removing these tips are large. But poor countries don't have the ability easily to say, I will subsidize this because of all these social benefits. Indeed, we were told by the government that were we to tax the waste companies, uh, unless they use waste to energy, so unless they were efficiently utilizing uh, the waste, if we were to try and do that, charge them, in, in, in developed countries we call this tipping fees uh, that could be collected, what would happen is that people would just dump their waste. There isn't the money in the economy for people to pay to dump their waste at the official places. They'll dump it in the gullies and the valleys uh, elsewhere. So we have a problem uh, in many poor countries in dealing with these issues. And I would say that some of the biggest problems, as with most things in economics, is about political economy. They are distributional effects. And these distributional effects often create the opposition to getting things done. So we know that taxing things that pollute is a good idea. You go across most developed countries, mature economies, and you'll find not a lot of taxes, but a lot of subsidies. Subsidies for very particular technologies. And these subsidies often have distortions. The biggest subsidy in alternative energy in the world today is ethanol. And the reason why is probably more to do with the power 
of the ethanol companies in Midwest USA and their lobbying abilities than it has to do with climate change technology or climate change economics. And so dealing with these issues, one of the problems with subsidies too is that governments end up backing a particular technology. And what we really want is the entire society, the private sector, the social sector, being incentivized to innovate to reduce carbon. But if we pick particular things and say, I'll subsidize solar, I'll subsidize ethanol, then actually we do not create incentives for the existing technologies to become more efficient. We lock our countries into particular technologies that we may find in five or ten years we've moved on from. We need to create general incentives, and those incentives will create innovation. We've already found that whilst fiscal incentives are important in this climate change battle, technological innovation also plays a very important role. So I would say that one of the key things that we need to do is improve the clarity of policy. If we are going to try and change behavior, we need to change incentives. If we're going to change incentives, we need government to take a role, government to take a stand, a clear stand on what the feed-in tariffs are going to be, a clear stand on how we limit our carbon usage. Like many economists, I prefer policies like cap and trade, which are not specific to technologies and creates incentives across society to reduce the amount of carbon. But let's think about that simple idea and think about the distributional effects of it. If you were to have a cap on carbon in the world today, that would imply a huge transfer away from poor countries to rich countries. The poor countries that today, at existing per capita incomes and usage, you're going to limit their capacity to grow. An alternative solution that would appear much fairer would be to have a cap on per capita use of carbon, which would imply a huge transfer away from the rich developed countries to those emerging poor countries. Morally, that may be a good thing to do. I would argue in favor of it. But you could imagine that that is not going to go down well in the parliaments around the rich and powerful countries. It is these distributional aspects, the issues of equity, that are often understated by my environmentalist friends. But they are very critical. Like in most things in economics, the reasons why things don't happen is not because we don't know what to do. It's not because we aren't aware of the imperative of doing it. It is the politics of doing it that stops it. So I think that we need a clearer uh, stance of government, one that incentivizes all carbon-minimizing uh, approaches. It's not, it's not specific to a technology platform. But I am actually optimistic. Because if you look around the world, you will find that the world has already started changing its behavior. Perhaps even more in those areas where there isn't a very clear government policy. Take the insurance industry today. The insurance industry today is factoring in into its insurance premiums the effects of climate change. 
charging more for risks that we felt 10 years ago, looking back in the past, were low risks, and now we're looking towards the future of a world that may be affected by climate change. You cannot pick up the annual report of any, any, any energy utility company in Europe without finding almost two-thirds of that report obsessing about how they're going to deal with rising energy costs, with the need to have more renewables, and dealing with the regulatory impact of climate change. Look at the pricing in which the markets price car companies, old economy companies, and new companies, and part of that difference is that market is saying they may well be a penalty, a regulatory penalty, on those companies producing things that produce a lot of carbon. Non-financial uh, financial statistics today and valuation of companies and markets are already taking into account the new world. I'm not in any way a market zealot, but I would say that it's interesting that in those areas in which the market is not acting, that those areas the government is not acting, People, individuals, and companies are making some changes, by no means enough changes, to have the kind of change we need to have, the kind of behavior we need to change. We need to change incentives, and government needs to do that. And all I'm arguing for is that we do that in a way that focuses on our objective of reducing carbon and not on specific technologies focuses on taxes rather than subsidies. And we need to think very clearly of the political and distributional implications. The biggest obstacle at G20 to climate change resolution is a story that is probably does not speak its name. It is not that India and China do not care about climate change. It is they fear that the solutions proposed are those which favor those countries that have already polluted and disfavor those countries that have yet to grow. And we need to address that challenge and not just repeat that it's an imperative that we do something about it. Because that's a fundamental challenge. When we look around at the difficulties that Europe has today in solving its credit crisis, I would argue again, it is not that people don't know what needs to be done. It is the lack of political mandate that lets them do what needs to be done. And the Indias and Chinas of this world will not have a political mandate to reach a resolution on climate change that disfavors their countries, disfavors countries that have more to grow, and favors those countries that have already grown and have already polluted. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, to our two speakers for those introductory remarks, especially since they've been very good with time and they've left us a good 45 minutes or so uh, for you, the audience, to uh, chip in your thoughts, your questions. And we do have, I'm pleased to say, a number of notable experts on this subject in the audience tonight who I know, and I'm sure there's quite a few here who I don't know. So who would like to kick off? I would ask if you would uh, tell us who you are when you are asking your question, and if you would try and keep questions and points fairly punchy so we can get as many people involved in the discussion tonight as possible. Michael. 
And do wait for the microphone as well, please, because we are recording. Hey, I'm Michael Rieder from the Solar Country, Germany. Um, I have a question for you, um, Tom. Thank you very much for the, for the nice speech. You mentioned a four-degree um, increase in temperature. And I always like to better understand what that means. I know that maybe the maladives will be gone, but do you have kind of some ideas what that means for our day-to-day -day lives if the temperature increases by 4%? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wish, in a way. Um, uh, and it would certainly take a long time, yes. Uh, an enormous decline in water security everywhere. A large part of the world, um, maybe a third of the world's population are already suffering from water stress. Uh, there will be, uh, you will change. It, the original findings have not basically altered. Dry areas will get dry areas and wet areas will get wetter. And that's roughly speaking what it will do. So about a third of the population already living in areas where there's significant water stress. Um, about 400 Chinese cities, for instance, have real water problems already. So a significant decrease in water uh, security, huge increase in food insecurity. The BBC published one of the most graphic examples of what that one might mean. They published a map from a report by one of the agricultural research institutes showing that actually not even getting up to four degrees. It, what it did was very interesting. It charted the increase in childhood malnutrition, malnourishment that they expected to come from a loss of food security resulting from rising temperatures. And all across India, south of the Himalayas, there was this great big dark purple patch, uh, again, in those countries that are pretty arid, um, uh, or bits that are fairly arid, uh, where childhood malnutrition will be increasingly uh, will increase quite dramatically. You'd lose up to, I mean, again, it will vary with your crop, so aggregates are hard to do in a, a short way. But l almost all crops will produce less at that temperature, everywhere. Not, I mean, people think that somehow, you know, as the temperature goes up, you can move the crops north. There are all kinds of other obstacles to that. But actually, what they're now, what their science are now finding on impacts is that beyond a certain point, the temperature stress becomes so great that all crops, uh, wherever they are, start to lose production. You'll see a change in health uh, vectors. Uh, we're already seeing some changes at what is now about a one degree, a bit short of a one degree rise in temperature. We're beginning to see changes in species distribution that will uh, accelerate quite a lot. And with that will come a change in disease vectors as they move, and so on and so on and so on. And the real point is we don't actually understand that very well. We can pick out the gross things like what it will do to agricultural production or water security, but we have no idea about all of the sort of complex links that will get broken, uh, and therefore how ecosystems as a whole will react. And ecosystems provide us with an enormous range of services, more than just food and water. So to give you a real description would take a lot longer than we've got, but there's an implicit criticism in your point which I think is quite fair which is that so far the description by climate scientists of what this means has tended to be focused on the, as it were, the geophysics and the biophysics uh, of, of it and to describe the big aggregates of what will happen to ice sheets and sea level rise and not really focused on what it means for individuals, human beings or human communities around the world. I don't think climate change at four degrees will be very good for the family. Gentleman to the front here and then the lady behind. I'll come to you next. 
Uh, thanks. I'm Guy Newey from the Think Tank Policy Exchange. I wanted to um, follow on the logic from what you're saying about what would happen if we don't have a global deal on climate. Is not the logic of that position that areas which are taking action, like the EU, have to consider carbon border tariffs against areas that are taking no action, such as the US? I'd like to know what are the risks of such an approach and whether the panelists have got any alternatives. I think that's one for both of you gentlemen. Which would you like to start? It's, it's, a, good, it's a good question and indeed um, there's already discussion of uh, a carbon tax at the import level. Um, really there are a number of issues around that. Um, one of the arguments is that uh, countries that are taking steps, be it uh, in Europe, but not just in Europe, um, that that's costly. And that can reduce the competitiveness of an economy. And therefore, it would be unfair for that economy to suffer a loss of competitiveness against those countries not taking those steps. And that is a logic being put forward uh, for some kind of uh, carbon tariff. I, I'm nervous about all tariffs, as they tend to be various attempts to dress up protectionism and defend uh, poor competitiveness and reduced incentives to keep on uh, your, the economy being competitive. Uh, but I can understand the political pressures for that will grow, certainly. And uh, Sarkozy has already a couple of times rolled out the idea that there should be border tax adjustments. I think I agree very much with Abby. It's a very dangerous place to go. You can see the attractiveness, the populist attractiveness of the logic of that. But if you have a problem that you can only solve by working together with everybody else, and you think the way in which you're going to go about doing that is to impose border tax adjustments, don't be surprised if you not only don't solve that problem, but if you undermine confidence uh, in the whole underlying argument about the need for a rules-based uh, uh, open global trading system. I don't think we can solve this problem unless we can retain that system, but I don't think we can retain that system if we don't solve this problem. I'm going to add one further point to that, and that is that uh, you know, we have exported most of our polluting industries to developing countries, uh, so we produce less carbon now, they produce more carbon, and then to slap border tariffs on them as well would be adding insult to injury. Keep in mind that China uh, today has, I think I'm correct in saying, 13 of the world's 20 worst cities for air quality. Uh, what they're producing is what we've got in this room with us here today. Um, so it's our pollution, not just their pollution. The lady over there in the grey. Thank you. Microphone, please. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Tanya Dimitrova. I'm a student at Queen Mary University. And I wanted to draw your attention to a technology which is not new. It's called integral fast reactors. It's a type of nuclear reactor which uses spent light water reactor fuel plus military-grade plutonium, not newly mined um, nuclear um, materials, but already spent fuel to produce energy a lot more efficiently than the traditional light water reactors. And uh, the nice thing about it is that it resolves the energy crisis and uh, the nuclear waste and proliferation problem and the climate change all in one. My question is, how come we're not talking about that? 
Whereas I know that this week the Department of Energy and Climate Change is discussing building an IFR reactor in the UK. Thank you. Well, I'm definitely going to pass this to Tom because I've had the pleasure of listening to him talking about the relative economics of the nuclear industry and uh, carbon capture and sequestration on several occasions in the past. So, Tom, you can kick off on this. Uh, and we'll... Yeah, I mean, we can... It's a, it's a good question, and what's more, it's being asked a lot more, and people inevitably will ask the question. It's also being asked about thorium reactors at the moment. Again, there's been a resurgence of interest in thorium reactors. As I pointed out to the uh, person who's been promoting that, who asked actually exactly your question, how come people haven't done this? And you, you know, uh, Well, yeah, there's very good reasons why they haven't done it. It's not that people haven't looked at all of these things. Is they, they simply don't work as practical propositions. So you can come up with engineering studies that show that uh, all the attractiveness that they have. You can come up with uh, studies that will show you how they are cheaper than everything else. And then you think, well, how come all those investors didn't do those studies? Well, the answer is they did those, do those studies and decided they weren't good investments. And that's the answer to it. And on the broader question about nuclear as a contributor to climate change, We've been building nuclear reactors around the world at a rate of about one uh, a year, commissioning new nuclear reactors, rate about one a year. If what we did was to commission nuclear reactors for the next decade at around eight a year, so really massive increase, and then for the 10 years after that we did it at 15 a year, then we would be, um, we would have exactly the same number of nuclear reactors online as we've got today. Now, that, that's because all the reactors we built in the 70s and 80s will be coming offline as fast as we're building, or faster than we're actually building the new reactors. So it doesn't actually get you anywhere. I'm not, I, I mean, as Alistair knows and referred to, I think the idea we should build any of is complete economic nonsense. But leaving that out, even if we did a heroic effort, it can't actually... Uh, stop you building more coal and building more fossil fuels, burning more coal and using more gas. And that's the issue that we've got to deal with anyway. We can't wish that away. I have nothing to add to that. I agree with that. Uh, I'm just going to add one point to that, and that is I'm doing some work on China at the moment, and we're doing some projections on uh, China's uh, resource security. Um, and of course China has the world's biggest nuclear program although it's in suspension at the moment because of the Japanese nuclear disaster uh, by any reasonable projections in 2020, 2030 China is still going to get 70% of its electricity from coal uh, despite having a massive nuclear program yes. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Steele from uh, Energy Aid um, I just wanted to get a couple of comments, if I could, or just from you on, on the subject of energy equity. You brought it up earlier. Um, the first one being, I, I'm really interested in how we approach the answers. I'm not going to posit any kind of view. But first of all, the fact that about half of all the carbon that currently exists in the, in the atmosphere came from three countries historically, which is the United Kingdom, the United States, and Germany. So from an energy equity perspective, how do you take account of that historical uh, issue against developing economies today? Indeed, can you take account of it, and should you? And the second is, a uh, uh, question would really be, in, in, in respect to that, we talk about tariffs and carbon taxes and so on as a good way of, of combating climate change, but before we even get to the tariffs, it might be an idea to think about the subsidies, because the IEA um, uh, estimates that somewhere near half a trillion dollars a year 
uh, of subsidies are made available to the fossil fuel industry around the world. Um, that's quite a lot of money. Obviously, that's the basis of cheap fuel and the basis of, of economies. What should we do about that? What do you think about that figure? Is it an accurate figure? And what should we do about it? Avi, do you want to keep us on that? Well, I think those are two very important issues. I think the... Um, I saw a fascinating chart, some of you may have seen it in The Economist magazine, I think it was two weeks ago, but some com investment company had created an index of companies that spend the most on lobbying, and that index had outperformed any other index. Yeah. So I found that fascinating, <laughs> A, because it's not a difficult thing to come up with, uh, but um, I think it tells, you, uh, it tells you why we have these subsidies. The oil industry is a very powerful industry. It uh, makes a lot of money and still gets a lot of subsidies. Some of these subsidies uh, have historical and sensible backgrounds, but ultimately, if we're trying to deal with our overconsumption of energy, we've certainly got to reduce subsidizing it, uh, and we have to think about uh, how we tax it. Again, you have a distributional issue, though, that many studies have shown that when you tax this, it is quite regressive. So you will need to find ways of offsetting that so your poorest people are not suffering the most from your energy policy. I think the, the point you make about the historical legacy of carbon, if you like, is something that you don't hear often in London and New York. You will hear continuously in Delhi and Beijing. So I think that it's something we can't ignore. Uh, a, a simple way of thinking about it would be a per carbon per capita. But that would imply such a huge reduction of our carbon usage in the developed economies that we would never agree to it. So, but it, it does throw the cat amongst the pigeons in the sense of how you start thinking about it. We think, oh, why, do, why doesn't the world just have a cap and we stop producing carbon? Uh, and that has, I would say, almost zero residence in very poor countries who look at, the, look at the carbon legacy and say that their development, that our development came about through energy-intensive uh, processes, through, in the case of, uh, of the empire, one cannot ignore our uh, horrible slavery uh, legacy, through a whole sources of, of development that are not available to poor countries today. And then we want to create more obstacles uh, and so you find that that debate is the debate you have in, in Delhi and Beijing. And so I think we do need to address it. And it will be useful to think about what a per capita carbon limit would mean for us. Uh, and then realize, well, okay, we may not be able to go there, but let's see how close we can to something like that. In the long run, if we, if we lived on Mars and we wanted a solution for Earth, our sister island, uh, a, a per capita carbon limit makes tremendous sense. Let individuals decide how they spend their money, how they spend their carbon allowance that is linked to what is sustainable for the world economy, for, for, the, for the economy as a whole, for Earth as a whole. That makes a lot of sense, but it'll be very, very hard to get to that level. Subsidies, interesting point. Um, let me take that one to one side. Um, for, because the IEA figures are about consumption subsidies, not about production subsidies. And when you ask the IEA about production subsidies, they say they're too difficult to calculate. And I'm not surprised that a lot of people in the rest of the world think that's completely outrageous, that we go on about 
reducing consumption subsidies, which are largely in poor countries, by the way. Uh, but we don't go on about reducing production companies, which made me cheer quite loudly when Obama said he wanted to uh, withdraw, take away the subsidies for the oil industry in the US. And just you know, why you sometimes get quite suspicious about sort of things that economists say. And all of a sudden, Republicans were starting to stand up and yell and say, no, that's like a tax. Well, yeah, it might be in a model, but it's not in the real world like a tax. It's just not a tax. But that was... So, certainly get rid of some of the... Avi and I would completely agreement on that. Just get rid of the subsidies. Uh, consumption subsidies you need to taper away over time. Production subsidies we should get rid of right away. Why on earth we currently, the British taxpayer, is subsidising the oil industry in Britain, which is selling oil at $100 a barrel, I simply, for the life of me, don't understand. But we are nevertheless putting up with that. On the equity issues, it's, it's, it's written into the climate treaty, common but differentiated responsibilities. It's written in and is observed in a sense that the bargain that people are trying to strike recognizes that. Now, there are a couple of things you've got to add on, however. One, that cumulative burden, the difference isn't quite as big as you'd expect. And what people, I mean, what's now happening, the rate of increase in uh, uh, emissions from some of the bigger developing countries is such that they're catching up quick. They're not there. But that's why the bargain is one in which we'll reduce our emissions first and we'll pay some money first, uh, but we've got to get to a point where everybody's got to take it on. I just think the idea of exactly what... Uh, I had in mind when I was saying that things, some things work in models but don't work in the real world is the idea of a per capita carve-up. I mean, if you proposed doing that about any other resource in the economy, people would think you were nuts. Why don't we have equal shares of cocoa, uh, for instance? Why do it for carbon? And if, if you don't have a principle that says we should have equal shares of cocoa, why should you have one that says we should have equal shares of carbon? So I don't see the consistency in the, in the case. I don't think that will, apart from agreeing with Avi on the politics of it, I just don't think it's a particularly good way to, to think about the equity issue. And there's another side to that issue, and I once asked the former uh, Chinese ambassador to the UN in a conference we were at, I asked him what he thought China would do if the West decided to do less or do no more. Uh, because there is an enormous inequity too, which is not a human-induced inequity, in where the burdens will fall. And so to have a narrow debate about equity in terms of blame and allocation, I think, gets away from what we need to do to solve the problem, which is we've got a common problem which we share, and we've got to figure out the ways, however difficult, and they are difficult, to work together to do that. Turning it into some kind of burden-sharing argument I don't think that's much better to do actually what the Chinese are doing, which is saying, well, we've got to go to a low-carbon economy. We're going to get there first and sell you stuff. I mean, which is a much, I think, a much better way to approach the issue. Where's the opportunity side? Hi. Uh, my name is Jayashree, and uh, I'm a student of uh, renewable energy and climate change from University of Leeds. Um, my question is mainly for Professor Avinash, but I'd also like uh, your, Mr. Burke's thoughts on this. Uh, I was working on the uh, transition pathways to low-carbon economy in the UK, and uh, uh, when I heard your arguments about the energy situation in the UK, about how uh, you know a lot of it is subsidised, um, and you did mention that you know there are complex systems and a complex interrelationships, and I thought of the UK, the way it's happening in the UK is, you know, the the very, uh, like, PV versus uh, the 
renewable energy versus the conventional energy is a bit of a simplistic argument because you need a complex mix of everything to ensure energy security. And um, the way it's working now is there's a lot of regulatory push. So the utilities are compelled, even uh, in an economic sense, to actually diversify uh, to various technologies. So they need to ensure they have uh, conventional, they're going into gas and they're also going into nuclear uh, as well as renewables. So I don't see how a market, a, a totally market-based situation like cap and trade would work. It would be wishful thinking, but then you would need more regula regulation to make it work. So I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, you know, when I uh, get involved in trying to fund renewable energy projects, one of the problems that investors say is that they look at this subsidy that they're being offered and they say, well, how long is that going to last? Because they're all entirely artificial. There's no principle behind it. There's no economics behind it. It is just at the time of the day, they decided that that would be a good thing to subsidize. So you know, why of all the range of things we can do for climate change, is ethanol the most productive in terms of subsidy? And indeed, the subsidy on ethanol has created such a switch into ethanol that it played a part, not by any means the most important part, but in our food crisis. So I think the investors say it's a landscape that they can't really understand. It's not sufficiently clear. Um, it's not long-term. So they only look for short-term returns, which actually makes the subsidies have to be even bigger. And the subsidies are very uh, artificially placed, they're rand almost randomly placed, on specific technologies because the producers of those technologies have lobbied for those subsidies. And what that does is it reduces any incentive to innovate with existing technologies. If you are a car company, you are, you, you, what you find now is design being driven by subsidy technology being driven by the subsidy. So a car company doesn't think about how do I make the most efficient engine. It thinks how do I create an engine that creates the most subsidies. And that is a very artificial situation. What do we want to achieve? We want to achieve, at the end of the day, reducing temperatures in the long run, reducing carbon in the long run, and we should be as, as technology neutral as possible. And I think that none of these solutions are your silver bullet, but cap and trade goes towards the, 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 the uh, movement of saying, look, I don't care how you do it. I want to incentivize you to do it. There may be a technology. Most certainly, in 20 years' time, we'll be using new technologies. We want to incentivize, today, new technologies that are most carbon neutral, not all the research going in to how do I get the biggest subsidy that's currently available. So that's really what I'm arguing. I'm not saying that the, the market is somehow the way to do it. What I'm saying is that whatever you do, it, cannot be, it should not be driven by subsidy, one, for all kinds of reasons, and two, it should not be so technology specific. And unfortunately, the way the subsidies have arisen, they're basically lobbied by existing producers.
I have lots of sympathy with Avi's argument about the trouble with the invisible hand being all the very visible hands uh, that get in there and mess up the invisible hands. So I have a lot of sympathy with that as a, a general point, and it's certainly very prevalent in the energy industries. But I think the idea that uh, a, a, a specifying a carbon price will get you where you need to go to in the time that you've got to do is to believe in magic. For a start, it ignores all the other prices that real-world investors are also evaluating at the same time. And you've got a lot of other price dynamics going on. And frankly, when you're looking at large, high-capital, long-life investments, the price of money is a lot more important than the price of carbon. And we don't talk at all about what you should be doing about the price of money, for instance. Now, I don't know whether when Avi was thinking about uh, subsidies, he was thinking about de-risky, uh, about what you might do to lower the cost of capital, which seems to me much more important in this game than, as I say, than the, the, the simple price of carbon. Uh, I think the idea that somehow governments can't pick winners is another one of those sort of popular myths among largely economists. I mean, it's true that governments can't pick winners. It's also true that market doesn't pick winners a lot of the time either. Uh, only the ones that you, uh, the market, the losers the market pick disappear quite quickly. Uh, the losers government pick tend to live on in the memory. But actually, neither and, government... And the budget. Yeah, and the budget. Neither governments nor markets are particularly good at picking winners. And I actually think you have to be much more directive. The idea that we should have sat around uh, in uh, advance of the Second World War and had a competition to see who could come up with the best competitor to uh, the ME109 was frankly a silly idea. You know, government had to make a choice about what it was it thought would take on. Uh, and it's the difference between being in a situation where you've got an existential crisis, which is, as I hope I made clear, something I think you've got with climate change, and in a situation where you've got uh, actually options, a much wider range of options for solutions. Markets are brilliant at exploring the landscape of least cost opportunity, but if they don't get there in time, it doesn't matter. Uh, so all kinds of problems where it doesn't matter if you get there a bit later, markets are great. When you're dealing with a problem where it matters whether you get there in time, you've got to think of something else. Now, I can use a word that Avi would find more difficult. There are other ways. You can just specify regulations. You could just say there's an emissions performance standard for power stations. That's it. All those uh, uh, um, power stations that can't meet that standard by 2015 or 2020 get shut down. I mean, and you get a lot of innovation. Uh, no, he'd say that's I, right. No, I don't disagree with no, that. No, I know you don't disagree with that. It's just, it's just hard to get people to use the word regulation. Um, but there's a regulatory approach. We don't talk about it enough. Right, I'm starting to get a plethora of hands, so just keep them crisp, please. Uh, my name's Catherine Dees. I run Low Carbon Workplace, which is a carbon trust subsidiary. As the name might suggest, we focus specifically on the built environment, which in the UK... Uh, the commercial built environment contributes about a fifth of the UK's emissions. Um, against a backdrop over the last six months or so where we've seen two significant pieces of policy either postponed indefinitely or deferred and one rather neat market-based instrument turned into a de facto tax in yeah. the carbon uh, area, um, I think it's laudable to have these conversations about what you both might think would be the perfect economic solution to the clear political crisis that we have. But exactly how do we make politicians come up with a consistent carbon policy framework? Because that's the bit that I'm missing, and perhaps you could enlighten me. <laughs> uh, you don't, is the short answer, the current politicians. You don't. You get, you get a very small... Uh, 
self-appointed oligarchy that uh, basically is concerned primarily with staying in office uh, and is not bound and is not in effect really bound to anything in the base of society. That's why I ended my remarks talking about what I think is a rather deep political crisis that underpins uh, the crisis. And you get that kind of opportunism all the time. I thought the way I thought what was outrageous about uh, the carbon reduction commitment, which is what you're referring to, was was that the Treasury stole a billion destroyed confidence and massive destruction of confidence in government policy for what is a rounding error on the deficit that they were stealing the billion in order to tackle. I mean, it just that's a classic Treasury misjudgment. I have to say, if I um, could think of one thing I would do, it would be to send every single person in the Treasury to a re-education camp for at least a year uh, and not let them make any decisions, because I think oh, they yeah, are a yeah. major part of the problem. I want to tie um, this question with the last question, which is that you know, because of the free rider problem, it is very hard to get politicians to make a decision because of the distributional. I, I think fundamentally the reason why it's not that our politicians aren't aware of the issues, the distributional effects and the free rider effects mean that they're not incentivized. The electorate is not going to vote for something. They'll say... Electorate will always take it as, you know, in all these surveys, people take global development as something they're deeply and passionately concerned about. How much do they do about it individually? How much will they vote about it individually? They don't. But I think that if you were to say a very clear policy, if I were to sort of take on board you know, Tom's approach, which I think is actually not very different from my approach, in the sense that if you said in 10 years' time that all your power stations would have X amount of emissions and... I don't care how they achieve it. I'm not going to require them to have a specific technology, uh, be it nuclear or, or anything, and then let people find ways to achieve it. And that will be a way in which people are not making... Uh, I think that's the easiest step for our politicians to take. I would take a step further than that. I agree with a lot of what I've just said. I'd take a step further, because you've actually got a, a problem with sinking uh, the capital early. Uh, and what I would say is, let's take, I mean, the, the Treasury has done another cheating thing with something it calls a carbon floor price, which isn't. I mean, that's just simply a lie. It's a deliberate lie. It's a piece of sort of straightforward attempt to fool the public. It's a carbon support price, a rather old-fashioned 1960s left-wing proposal for a commodity support price. Take out the word carbon from what they've written and put in the word cocoa. And you would have you would have exactly the same that sort of reaction. Are you a cocoa drinker? No, no. But uh, cocoa has been a theme. It, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but the point about the point about that being, it is just a tax. It is just a tax for revenue raising. It's not a tax to achieve anything. It's not going to have any effect at all on investment uh, decisions. And it's a cynical ploy by the Treasury. Now, what you could do, which is in addition to what Avi was saying about the sort of time frame that you set about the transition, and in that sense, I go along with him about carbon neutrality. What you could do is say that we will have a small carbon tax like that, but we will recycle all of that revenue into the uh, carbon abatement technology, the shifts that have to go on. Now, at that point, you've got a self-sunsetting tax that's honest, that people can see as honest. It's just used for that purpose, much more politically attractive than people who are quite rightly suspicious that what's going on mostly is green taxes to just being used for revenue raising, which is true. Uh, and it's about time we sort of started to think about adding that to the kind of long-run type framework that uh, Avi was suggesting so that you can help de-risk the capital 
transformations that have to go on. But you don't need a huge amount of money to do that. And at the end of the day, you get rid of your tax because you've got rid of your carbon. It's not what the Treasury has in mind. The Treasury would like to keep the carbon tax like it kept alcohol and tobacco taxes. I'm going to go from my right through to the left with the questions because I can't see what order the, the hands are coming up in. So it's the gentleman from first and then the gentleman there and then I'm going to come into this block and move on round. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, thank you. My name is Vu. I work for Nomura. Um, just a question on carbon. Um, despite, despite all that um, hot topics and discussion about climate change and carbon, the carbon market has nearly collapsed over the last year or so. Carbon price all-time low. Um, leaving aside the economic crisis, where do you see this uh, going forward? Uh, because obviously it makes um, the renewable plan even more uneconomical. So. Thank you. I don't see it improving very much, at least in the near term, largely because what you've seen is, is, is simply something Avi has, has referred to consistently and which he's right to focus on, which is that you've got a very high level of policy risk and nobody really knows how to price policy risk and governments are inclined to be blown around uh, by the latest headlines in the press. I mean, we seem to have a government that's rather better at managing the headlines than it is managing the country and it's not unique. Uh, in that. And so I see the prospects for the carbon market, which simply requires that governments actually uh, um, move, as was always intended, move the, the bar down, the amount of permits they issue down, uh, in order to achieve the climate objective. That's not what they do. They shift the bar, they let the, they let the bar in order not to hurt the economy, and then they want to now relax even that. Uh, that's at least how lots of people see it, uh, because the economy is in problem. You've got to make your mind up whether you uh, want to solve this problem or not. If you don't want to solve this problem, then uh, you should be honest and say so. That's not what's happening. Uh, and what is happening is a loss of confidence by investors everywhere that governments are really serious about solving the problem. I, I'm, uh, I suspect, um, less of a market skeptic than Tom. However, uh, I would be the first to say that... that Events that are, that are going to occur in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, markets find very hard to deal with. Not least because markets will say that the future is full of multiple scenarios. Uh, imagine in 10 years' time you're, you're focused on planning for a modestly higher price of carbon and you forget you fail to predict a massive global financial crisis, you know, what's going to impact you most? So that's the case where there's a role for government to come in and say there's some long-term factor here that has been underpriced. And the thing is, to, if you want to get the market, or uh, let's not just talk about markets, individuals and behavior to change, you need to have a clear framework set out for how you see things happening in the long term. So is it that you're going to have these emission restrictions or price for carbon and lay it out, lay out the 10, 15, 20 year time frame. When I used to be a you know, director of organizations, um, you would never ask people to do a three year strategy. Because whenever the management came back with a three-year strategy, it was all about how they would keep things exactly where they were. Yeah. Because they're the management and they didn't want to change. When you told them, come back to me with a 20-year strategy, all kinds of innovations came up because they didn't feel it was their job at stake anymore. So if you want innovation, you want people to do radical things, you need to set out a very long-term strategy. Uh, and I think markets find it hard to operate, and that's a, in the long term, unless 
government has put down very clear yardsticks about what it expects and what it's aiming for and perhaps a range of policies it's going to use to get there. One thing I've never understood about the city is if a government decides it's going to uh, ban short selling of, of CDSs, you get every bank in the world running into the Treasury and uh, lobbying frantically that this is you know, dereliction, it's cutting off our business, it's bad for markets, etc. I have never understood why it is that the city has never lobbied to have a proper support for cap and trade. Um, you know, it's one of those areas of lobbying which I think most of us in this room could pro pro probably applaud were it to happen. So what I'm, the message I'm saying here is it's actually not just up to governments, it's up to us to demand of governments what we want them uh, to do. And I made this point when we were Lehman Brothers and I just got out, oh no, we're not doing that. Um, I'm not going to talk about my present employer. Gentlemen at the back there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Robert, Robert Coates at King's Brazil Institute. Um, I think this follows on from the last point in that uh, the, looking at the idea of perceived uh, remoteness of climate change impacts and, and action on risk changing political and economic um, um, will, will on action. Um, do you think that increased incidence of climate-related disasters and associated, associated changes in the uh, insurance industry can contribute to increased political will? Yes, it will, but over uh, a long time, and maybe not to the point where actually you create enough will to do something in time. And remember, it's very clear, the longer you delay taking action, the more expensive and disruptive that action becomes. So I think it will be a council of despair to hope that, that would, that's all you can do. And to go back, the government has set out a yardstick. I mean, this government, uh, uniquely, and with a lot of credit to, to this government, has set out in the Climate Act, British government, that is, has set out, a yard, set out its sort of long-term plan in the uh, Climate Change Act and the carbon budgets. The problem is, an awful lot of people think that when push comes to shove, the government will cheat on those budgets. And so it doesn't have the effect that it, it, it should have. Um, uh, why, interestingly, it's rather more useful to have European legislation uh, because actually if you fail to meet targets that are written into European legislation, sooner or later somebody takes you to the court and you end up having to pay a lot of money in, in fines. Um, so a good argument for staying in the EU is it helps to discipline governments that might otherwise uh, uh, sort of cheat on that. But I think we, I think we have to... We have, to have, we have to do something which we haven't had to do. That's why I say this is a different problem. We have to do something we haven't ever had to do before. We really do have to invent the future or it will invent us. And we probably won't like the way it invents us. I think the premise is absolutely correct that uh, crises do create stronger incentives for a moment yeah. for people to act. And the nature of climate change is that you're going to have more climate-related crises. So it may be that they help to push the agenda along. Um, let's hope that uh, we don't have to wait too long for that. One in the front here, and then I'm coming to you. Hello, Peter Bishton from Cargill in Geneva. In Geneva, excuse me. Isn't, in terms of carbon pricing, isn't really the root cause of today's um, malaise to do with the fact that we've allowed carbon offsetting to somehow become morally inferior to carbon which is reduced at the point of, uh, of, of, uh, of, where, of where it's emitted from? Um, it's a little bit the same as uh, you were talking about solar, solar parks in Germany, that there is a, 
a feeling that uh, a megawatt hour produced from a solar park in Germany is somehow morally superior to one produced next door in a, in a sunnier country. So it seems to me that carbon offsetting has somehow become very unpopular and this is the root cause of the, uh, the malaise that we're seeing today. I don't think it's the root cause of the malaise. I think you're right about carbon offsetting uh, being uh, uh, become unpopular. It seemed to be unpopular. And some of that's just based on experience with CDM projects that were, uh, didn't deliver. Uh, and uh, that inevitably causes and raises doubts about the whole idea. Uh, so I think we were not, we have not been as rigorous in the exploration and you know, the development of carbon offsetting. But, but carbon offsetting is a relatively small part, however you do it, is a relatively small part to date of uh, uh, what, how we've tried to tackle emissions. And so it's not what's responsible for our failures, which is not to say that there isn't a debate to be had about how to make sure that we get it right. Do, I don't think, remotely think we can solve this problem without scope for carbon offsetting. Uh, but it's, it's not, it's, again, it's not, and, and Avi was right, there are very few silver bullets around in this field, and that's, a, that's not one of them either. Um, it's got a part, but this is going to be an opera with a lot of parts in it, and it's not going to be a kind of song, especially not a one-note song, which is what the nuclear people think. But anyway. I, I, I agree with that. I'd say that, you know, with these things, they're, they're about a process. So it is part of the process of getting to where we need to get that we've created these markets that don't quite work. That's just be the beginning of the process. It's because the politicians do not have the mandate to really set a market which causes a, a large cost for producers. And hopefully one day they will have that mandate. Which is but, an interesting point just on that, because we focus on the cost of producers, but actually there are a whole bunch of consumers who are smaller businesses who are consumers of the climate who are already having costs imposed on them by the level of change we already had, but those costs aren't aggregated, and back to your point, they're not lobbied. Uh, so the idea that somehow there's an asymmetry in the debate, that if you do something it imposes cost, but if you do nothing it's cost-free, that's completely mis- uh, uh, characterization of the debate. Yes, but um, you know, producers are concentrated lobbyists. Yes. Consumers are very uh, evenly distributed. Uh, so I think that um, we will. I, I think that were we to get where we have to get, we have to go through a process, and one is about creating these structures because we, there are multiple different approaches to this issue. We're going to have to apply all of them to deal with it. Uh, and so I, I'm not too disappointed that the market doesn't work, because I think we have to set one up first, but the politicians don't have the mandate to really do what's required yet, and we have to wait for that to happen. Right, I've got at least three more questions and five minutes left. Gentlemen at the back first. Should we take the three? Take yeah, the let's, three. Take, let's take the three together, and then we can uh, deal with them all. And then front here, please. And then I've got two over here, so that's, that, that's four. I'll take them in two twos. Um, so off you go, sir. Right, thank you. Philip Coughlin, retired engineer. Uh, both speakers, I think, have emphasised that the problem with climate change mitigation comes down to political action. And yet I think I could be forgiven for thinking and listening to the debate since that nobody really is very positive about the political will or the political structures can be changed with any certainty to get to grips with it in some realistic time scale. So let's be pessimistic for the moment and say this is not going to happen. The mitigation policies are not going to happen. We are going to fail 
Now we're faced with Tom's assertion that this means that we're faced with an irretrievable situation, or irreversible, I should say, because of the length of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But, and I'm sure the panelists know this, a lot of scientists and technologists have already come to this conclusion, and they are doing a lot of work on R&D. In fact, one of them, Roger Pilkey, which was mentioned by the chairman, has done a paper showing the one I'm particularly interested in, which is direct air capture, is actually potentially an economical um, solution. So you could get to the situation, if such a scheme works, where we do in fact continue to pump carbon dioxide, in, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere because we haven't developed the, the economics or the technology in time to prevent it, but coincidentally we are developing a situation where we can take it out. Now I know this is only one solution, I know you'll be able to put some negative points about this, but I just want to speak up for those scientists and technologists who have accepted that we're going to fail. They need the R&D to come up with solutions. And let me just remind people that many of the technological solutions that have occurred in the past that have influenced our lives have not been the result of economic or political policies. And I'll mention Bill Gates and the PC, but that might turn people off. Yes. So while we're uh, pleading causes, um, I'm uh, Ros Kelly and I was Australia's Environment Minister and I just wanted to just make one point about the impact of the uh, global recession. I think the real problem is the conversation about this issue has declined and politicians always respond to the conversation. And in our country at the moment, we've got a very brave Prime Minister that has just got through our legislation to bring about a price on carbon. But unfortunately, the debate is so crass in the country, you cannot believe it. There is no serious discussion about what any of this actually means because there's, there's no bipartisan approach. And I think one of the great things you seem to have here in Europe, and I might be wrong about it, but you seem to have more of an element of bipartisanship than we have in Australia. I have never seen the country so polarised, and it has just meant there's been no sensible debate. In fact, the, the only issue I think that you, you can see about our Prime Minister at the moment is you didn't curtsy to the Queen. You've got really, do, they, do any of you know that she brought in this legislation? I think not. And that's, that's the sad thing, I think, at the moment. I'm going to take the last two questions as well before we come back to you guys, because we are going to run out of time. So there's two over here. Gentlemen there. Thank you. And the other one was just in front. I'd just like to build on some points made in those two last comments. Um, Sorry, can you just tell us who you are? Yes, Robert Hall. Thanks. Um, we've been, a number of comments have pointed out the lack of political support for climate change. And certainly I find when you talk to people about it, there's no real urgency, no real importance attached to it. What is going to persuade people to join your insurgency before it's too late? And finally, in the front here. Hello, Paul King, Lloyds Banking Group. Um, you were discussing a per capita carbon cap, uh, which doesn't seem to take into account the fact that the planet is already overpopulated. So I wonder if any other methods have been considered, such as basing the cap on uh, a country's land mass, for instance? 
Okay, off you go, gentlemen. And if you want to put in some concluding remarks while you're talking in general, yes, please do. Let me just pick up the bits, a few of the bits. Um, uh, geoengineering, my problem, I mean, lots of people were doing lots of work and they should continue to do that work. But I don't easily see how people will agree to do something they don't know how to do when you can't get them to agree to do something they do know how to do. We know how to do the mitigation side. We can't get people to agree it. So I'm hard put. You still have all the same political problems uh, when you need to get people. Well, well I, I just I, the idea that if we don't do anything about climate change for 30 years, we'll be in a better position to get agreement. I think is very optimistic. And optimistic though I am, I doesn't stretch quite that far. I couldn't agree more with Ros about the importance of the conversation. But that's partly why I made my remarks about what's happened to the conversation between the left and the right, which has shrunk down into this ridiculous sort of managerial realm of discourse, which doesn't excite anybody about anything and ignores one of the other great equity issues, I mean, and, and Abby focused on equity issues in relation to the sort of rich and the poor, but actually it literally is true that we are stealing the future of our own children, and that is about as immoral as you could be, and we need to be having a conversation about that, and we're not having a conversation about that, and conversation is what drives politics, I completely agree with, with, with that, and it's that that will persuade people, engaging them in that conversation. It, you, at the end of the day, people persuade themselves, they don't you don't persuade them. At the end of the day, people pick up their curiosity, what their neighbours say uh, uh, matters. Now, can we do a lot better than we're doing about making the conversation that does let us relate? Yes, that's why I said, and it wasn't just a throwaway remark, climate change kills the family. Anybody who thinks that the family will prosper in a four-degree world has not really thought through and read about what the impacts of a four-degree world will be. But you don't hear very many environmentalists talking about the impact of uh, climate change on the family. There's an enormous range of people for whom that actually resonates very strongly who might not resonate about all the other things. So we're, we're too narrow in the way we structure the conversation. You know, health and climate change have some similarities. And this is to answer your question. In the sense that our individual health has a lot to do with our individual behavior. And the climate has a lot to do with our individual consumption behavior. And it, was not, it would not be an unreasonable solution to our health problems by giving people health budgets and letting them make individual decisions that improves their own individual health and minimizes their spend and maximizes the returns they get from it. And I think in the same way, a carbon budget for individuals can be one of the solutions to this problem. I think that there is a very important role for people like Tom to remind us of the imperative uh, of this issue and to try and change the conversation. I think it's going to be extremely difficult in democratic politics to get people to change things as long as there are lots of free riders and there are huge distributional impacts. I think that what the Australians have done has been extremely brave, extremely noble, in fact, of a country which is a major mineral extractor to do that. And I don't think you're going to find that's a common uh, attitude amongst our politicians. But where I'm sort of optimistic, and, and Tom would probably hate me for this, which is why I encourage him to go first, um, is that you know, in economics we often say the best solution to high prices is high prices. 
and that energy follows what we call uh, the hog cycle, right? You know, there has these supply problems. Big demand for energy comes from, say, India and China. Supply can't meet it. The energy price spikes. After a few years, energy supply comes on board. So you get the spike comes down. These spikes will provide, and here's where I'm perhaps more optimistic than Tom, but in a way, uh, Tom needs to be the way he is to get to change the conversation. But the reason why I'm more optimistic is that these energy spikes create incentive for some of the technological changes which are going to be a key part of the way we solve this problem in the long run. Thank you very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, and thank you, Ross, for mentioning the conversation. Now, as it happens, I was in Australia three weeks ago, and I have been following what's going on there quite, quite closely. Um, and I heard a lot of people in Australia saying, if only Bob Brown was a bit more middle of the road, then we could vote for him. So maybe there are things changing in Australia. Bob Brown, for for those of you who don't know, is the leader of the Australian Green Party, which currently, I think, holds the balance of power in the upper house. Um, So things are changing there. Part of the purpose of this evening was actually to restart the conversation, which uh, stalled back on the 15th of September 2008. And I think our speakers have done a splendid job of that uh, on our behalf this evening, as indeed have you, uh, the members of the audience. Back at that time, I uh, remember having a long conversation with uh, somebody Tom and I both know very well, John Ashton, who's the special representative of the UK Foreign Office on Climate Change, who uh, was busy promoting the idea at that time that uh, addressing climate change is an investment challenge. And I think certainly what we've heard today is consistent with that. And Tom mentioned the number $2 trillion. I was just trying to think where I'd heard that number sort of very recently. And it actually was 2 trillion euros, which is somewhat more than $2 trillion these days. And that's the cost of saving the eurozone, apparently. Um, So if it's worth that much money to save the eurozone, I do think it's worth slightly less money uh, to save the planet. But clearly, what investors need as well is clearer policy parameters. And we need those, as Tom suggested, by the time 2015 to 2020. So it's not too soon at all to be restarting uh, the stalled dialogue and cracking on with beginning to get our politicians and our investors thinking more about these issues. Now, having said that, I only have to wrap up with some thanks. First of all, many thanks to the London School of Economics and, of course, to our stewards this evening uh, who've done a splendid job on our behalf hosting this event. Uh, Secondly, the LSE Alumni Association, uh, who have also played a significant part in putting this event together. And thirdly, uh, and perhaps most of all, given my personal biases, I happen to be on their Practitioners Advisory Board, uh, Global Policy, for those of you who are not reading this excellent journal, you should certainly read it. This is a special edition on global energy governance, and I'm very grateful to Global Policy uh, for sponsoring. Uh, Fourth, uh, my thanks again to you, the audience. Uh, Great questions. And what I would ask you to do now to continue the dialogue before you leave is introduce yourself to the person standing next to you, sitting next to you, and get to know each other, because there's a lot of expertise in this room here, and networking is part of what all these events uh, are about. So do a little bit of networking, um, go across the road to the pub, have a couple of beers or whatever, and talk about what we can do to make a difference. Uh, because we've had the pleasure this evening of listening to two gentlemen who are making a difference, and I would ask you to put your hands together to thank Tom and Abby and the traditional <laughs>